This is Purple Hall. Welcome to Preble Hall, a podcast about naval history from the United States Naval Academy Museum in Annapolis. Welcome to another episode. This is the second in a series of special COVID-19 Preble Hall Naval History podcasts. And as I mentioned last week with the release of the episode with the command chaplain, Father Foley, the purpose of these particular episodes is twofold. First, it is the mission of the United States Naval Academy to inform the general public of our history but also it's our role to preserve history. And so with that in mind, this series focuses on leaders around the Naval Academy of 2020 and how we're and they are responding to COVID-19 and the tremendous challenges that have occurred in the past couple of months. The hope is that we will then transcribe all of these and then put a copy, a hard copy in the museum's files as well as the Naval Academy's Library of Special Collections and Archives. And hopefully it'll be helpful to those in the future. So our guest for today is Dr. Karen Sprouls, who's head of the Center for uh, Teaching and Learning here at the Naval Academy, to talk about uh, the role of her office during this. Dr. Sprouls, welcome to Preble Hall. Oh, thank you, Claude. It's good to have you back. It's great to be here. How did you come to the Academy? Well. I started out in a very traditional path um, as an academic. My um, PhD is in English from SUNY Buffalo. My dissertation was on D.H. Lawrence. My first book was on Virginia Woolf. So really very traditional um, British literature scholar. My first job was at Hamlin University in St. Paul, Minnesota. And I was there for about 10 years. That's where we had our kids. And um, I became department chair. And even before becoming department chair, I had been really interested in doing what I didn't realize at the time, but now looking back at it, um, is clear to me, faculty development. And that was the thing that really made me feel good. I felt like I was really able to bring something to the department that it desperately needed. Um, community, coherence, a sense of purpose, Um, I did a lot of work developing an assessment plan. I was also director of women's studies, so I got to do a very different kind of assessment plan for women's studies, which was And that was relatively early on in women's studies? It was very early on, yes. I mean, that was the time when um, all of us who were directing women's studies didn't have degrees in women's studies because they didn't have them when we were in school. Um, I went to American as an undergraduate, and they were just developing a minor in women's studies as I was leaving. And I, I took all the women's studies classes I could as they were developing that minor. So that was a very exciting time, but it wasn't quite here yet. So yes, it was very early. And it was also very early on in assessment. Um, we were the first, we were going through our, um, in that case, it was... Um, North Central, I think, was our accrediting body. And they had just decided that everyone had to have assessment plans. It was just lucky us, right? We were the first up. I know the feeling. I know the pain of Yeah, exactly. But it was so... Right. But it was so exciting, you know, because there wasn't a lot of work done about it. So you really had to build it from the ground up. You know, think about what is it that we want to know? 
it was, I found it exhilarating. And it really brought the department together because we had this project that, you know, we simply had to complete. And we did these wonderful things along the way. We created a map of the major and I had it printed by, you know, like an architectural printing so it was this huge, you know, gigantic poster um, that was really our assessment chart. But it showed, you know, where all of the things that we thought were valuable were introduced, were developed, and were ultimately assessed. And so whenever we got new advisees, you could always tell when someone had a new English major because they'd be standing in front of the map, you know, sort of pointing out how you work your way through the major. And it made sense of the major to the students. But... I also realized that it made sense of the major to the junior faculty who really had no clue, you know, because that's you not something they teach you in during your dissertation. It's not. It's not at all. I mean, there's so many things that faculty members have to figure out that they aren't taught. I mean, I was really lucky because in English, you know, you immediately start teaching freshman composition. So at Buffalo, there was a year-long course in pedagogy that went along with that. So I actually had training in how to teach. Um, but very few other people did, even in English at that time. So, you know, one more thing. And that's still the case today. I mean, we're still getting, you know, brand new people who have maybe never even been in the classroom before um, if they've done really research-intensive um, work in their PhD programs. Because some PhD students will be research assistants and others mm -hmm. will be teaching assistants. Right. And even teaching assistants in most disciplines, you, you know, basically go to the big lecture hall that you know has 500 students in it and you watch that and then you take you know 30 people for a discussion group right so you're you know you're really an assistant to the instructor um, it's just it's just different in English because there's so many um, sections of freshman composition to be staffed that large universities just put their graduate students right in there so it's you know and there's there's more or less authority that you have we were we had complete carte blanche to do anything we wanted in our classes. Was there some sort of national effort to educate, um, I guess, teach the teachers in, in this way? Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's really how centers of teaching and learning started developing, mm -hmm. is as people realized, probably driven by the need to retain students. Um, so maybe we should be, you know, more effective in the classroom um, and help them be more engaged and more successful. Um, a lot of it, it came from lots of different directions. Um, you know, Nessie, the National Survey of Student Engagement, was demonstrating that students who were engaged in classes tended to stay in college. So, you know, that was a big driver, I think, um, for a lot of places. When did you come to the academy? Was it four years ago? Five? Five years ago. It'll yeah. be five years in July. Yeah. I remember, because Regine Goodman, she, had, that's right. so she was your predecessor. Now, yeah. uh, for, for those listening, Dr. Regine Goodman is a bit of a legend because she was the first woman to mm -hmm. teach. She was the first full-time faculty yeah. member uh, back, oh gosh, maybe 70, 71, 72. But she is represented on, our, on the first deck of the Naval Academy Museum. So when you go through in the middle deck of the history of the academy, mm -hmm. you'll see a, a panel about Regine Goodman. Mm -hmm. Why'd you come to the academy? Yeah, well, yeah, well, Regine really is legendary, and those were big shoes to fill. Um, so, going back to my story about getting excited about faculty development and assessment and curriculum design, um, I left uh, Hamlin in. 1997, and I went to James Madison University. I was hired um, as 
the head of their English department there, which was a big change, going from a department of seven to a department which at that point was including adjuncts. We had 75 full-time instructors, so it was a really huge shift. But the shift was driven primarily by the fact that um, all of we, I had two daughters, and their grandparents were all in Northern Virginia, and so we just—it was just getting to be outrageously expensive to fly. Um, Northwest had a lock on the Twin Cities Airport, so you know it was several thousand dollars to come home for Christmas. So it was actually easier in the long run just to move. And we really wanted um, the grand, our grand, our parents to be involved in the kids' lives, and so that was absolutely wonderful. And so I was there for ten years, and during that time, I ultimately was associate dean of. Um, general education. And so I worked again a lot with curriculum design, with um, developing a diversity and inclusion component to the to the general education curriculum. It was really, really exciting. And so from there, um, that was really the last time I looked for a job. After that, I started getting recruited to um, to, in, in the next instance, develop a center for teaching and learning at the University of Southern Indiana. And that was just a blast. Um, and then after that, I, you know, was asked to be a dean and then ultimately a provost. And, you know, it's a tough time to be a provost right now. Um, you know, even five years ago, it was right now, I can't even imagine. Um, so coming here was the luckiest thing that ever happened to me. I just um, was interviewing for presidencies, you know, it's that typical academic track. They just keep pulling you up through. And it's so flattering. It's very hard to say, you know, oh, go on, you know, I'm happy here. Um, so, and, you know, I just kept thinking that, I would find a role where I could really have an impact. But it became clear to me that the farther away I got from the faculty and the students, the less impact I actually really had. You know, I was managing things instead of creating and developing things. So um, I was talking to my daughters um, by then. One was in high school, the other was in college. We were talking about the future. And I was talking about these presidencies that I was being recruited for and interviewing for. And my older daughter said, Mom, what is wrong with you? You hate doing this. You hate your job. You hate being an administrator. The thing you like least in the world is going to meetings. Find a job you love. And that was a real wake-up call. I mean, and, and a big part of the job of presidents of college these days is raising money, not, not so much here, yep. uh, but in your civilian colleges. That that's is all you do. For. Yep, that's exactly right, as a fundraiser. Okay. And, you know, and so when I thought about that, and my friends had even said, you know, you don't like to travel that much. You know, are you really going to like this? Um, but again, as I said, it's it's you know very flattering and hard to hard to not hard to step off of a path that's so clearly defined. Mm -hmm. But um, but I took I took Pippa's advice, fortunately, and so I applied for this job and very very happily came here to um, try to bring. A, a more holistic vision to the center. Um, Regine had just done this amazing work um, in preparing the ground. And the thing that was so incredible to me about working here compared to the faculty development work that I had done elsewhere is how incredibly receptive the faculty is to those sorts of workshops and speakers and book groups uh, that we're providing. And people are really hungry for it. And I think that's in large part because of the military faculty, you know, who 
very much like the graduate students I was talking about, um, coming with no teaching experience. You know, the people who come from the fleet, you know, they have master's degrees, they were never planning to be teachers, and they find themselves in a situation that they really want to be in, but they know that they don't necessarily have the background to do it. And the diff- the other difference is that you have civilian faculty here who hope to be tenured, many who are tenured, but with the military faculty, they're here for two or three years, mm-hmm. and then they move on to their next assignment in the military. Mm-hmm. They don't usually remain here as a civilian. No. So they have. So they really have a condensed right. uh, learning uh, uh, period. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And even the faculty, um, the civilian faculty who come here who haven't had teaching experience, they've imagined that they're going to be teachers. You know, so it's sort of been on their radar. You know, they have ideas about it. They've been watching their own professors and, you know, thinking about how things work in the classroom. And if you're not thinking about that as part of your future, you don't really notice um, the things that go into being an instructor. So I think it's really an eye-opening moment when they start imagining their classes. You know, they get here and someone says, here's a syllabus or not. Go make a syllabus. You know, how do you even start that? What is the role exactly of the Center for Teaching and Learning mm-hmm. as it stands today? Mm-hmm. And again, we're, we're doing this interview with, with the thought that we're not only informing you know, people, the midshipmen, faculty, sorry, not faculty, family members, uh, potential mm-hmm. applicants, but also, you know, 50, 100 years from now as they're, as they're reading back on this. That's exciting to think about, actually, isn't it? Um, we have all sorts of different programs at the Center for Teaching and Learning to help everyone, and not just faculty, but we also try to think about programs that are going to be engaging to the staff as well. Um, anything to develop your ability to serve the midshipmen more effectively. So for the um, the new military faculty members, we have a course called Foundations of Teaching that meets once a week starting in the middle of August, goes up until Thanksgiving, and we really talk about what their challenges are in the classroom, what to do on the first day of class, um, how to learn people's names, how to engage with your students. Um, what are some of the tips you give them in those cases? For learning names? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's actually, well... Because that's a real, that's an important it, skill, not only as a teacher, but if you're commanding a ship yeah. or you're, you're working mm-hmm. for the Office of Legislative Affairs, you have to know who all the legislators are and their staffs. Yeah, it's absolutely, it's true. It's easier in a classroom because you kind of have a captive audience who will do what you say. Um, photos. You have photos. The photos are incredibly helpful. So... Um, one of, the, one of the things that I do with my class that's really surprisingly effective is we play this game where um, the first person says their name, the second person says the first person's name and then their own name, right? And I always go first and last. And I have classes of about 22 students. So it takes a little bit of time. But um, I find, you know, the the prospect of being humiliated in public is an incredibly useful learning device um, in that situation. Do you go with first names? With I do, I do. Do most professors do that? It's mixed. It's mixed. Um, some people go with Mr. and Ms. Uh, uh, you know, it's kind of funny because when I first started teaching here in 2005, mm-hmm. I decided to go with the Mr. and Miss yeah. in class. Yeah. 
And the reason why was because of an old movie called The Paper Chase. Oh, yeah. And I just remember John Houseman saying, you know, Mr. Ford. Yeah. And, and I was like, okay, it, there's a professionalism that we mm-hmm. have to start with as a baseline in the classroom. Mm-hmm. If they're going to call me lieutenant, lieutenant commander, professor, whatever, then I should also address them as midshipman so-and-so or Mr. and Miss so-and-so. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I call them by their first names unless I've had them in class. Mm-hmm. And they're upperclassmen and it's outside of the classroom. Right. Yeah, and part of it is the culture of the department. Um, So the English department is really works hard at creating very informal, comfortable classes because we're talking about delicate material a lot of the time. And we want it to be, and this is true. I'm going to stop you for for just a second. So again, thinking 50 or 100 years in the future, what is considered delicate material in 2020 Mm -hmm. and how might that have changed over time in the English department? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Because um, what, mm-hmm. you know, in 2100, 20, mm-hmm. what they see as inappropriate would be kind of interesting to hear what That's did they true. think of in 2020? Yeah, and I hope that they're shocked by what it is. Um, so when I was an English major, it was shocking, you know, to read books by women authors and to, you know, talk openly about eating disorders and sexual assault and um, inequities for women. Um, now I um, push my students to talk a lot about race. Um, we, I'm teaching forms of poetry right now, and so we read, you know, we have a Norton anthology of poetry. We read the canon. It's almost all white men. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're also reading three poet laureates, um, Billy Collins, who is a white man, but also very funny and accessible, and then Tracy K. Smith, who's an African-American woman, who talks very openly in, we're reading her book, um, book of poetry called Wade in the Water, which is very, um, pers- it, it's, she really walks that line of blending the personal and the political in a way that is just is gorgeous but also heartbreaking. Uh, she is really focusing in this book on amplifying voices that have been repressed. So she writes a poem made of the letters of African Americans during the Civil War, and she abridges the or bridges the letters into this absolutely gorgeous poem. And then she writes a poem at the end um, about the importance of trying to retrieve our names. Um, very powerful things. Um, the final book of poetry that we're reading is by Joy Harjo, who is currently the poet laureate, the very first Native American poet laureate of the United States. And her poetry is also very personal and very political. Um, unflinching in confronting the kinds of abuse that Native Americans um, have received and the kinds of cultural damage that it's done. And just like Tracy K. Smith, she's very much about trying to remember our names, um, very much about bringing Native American imagery into her poetry, the sun, horses, Um, We're reading her classic collection, She Had Some Horses, in which the horses come to represent kind of uh, uh, animal spirit that is both violent and tragic and damaging and hopeful and proud all together. It's a very complicated understanding of identity that she brings. And that's been interesting to the students. They haven't resisted, but I can tell that they've had to are they uncomfortable? They have not been uncomfortable um, in this class so far. And it's interesting online. I think 
it, you know, it's it's much harder to gauge their responses. They were really embraced Tracy K. Smith. And I tend to attract a very diverse group of students. So I have a lot of um, African-American and Hispanic students in the class, um, which, of course, I didn't know when I ordered the books. But I was very pleased because, you know, there aren't that many classes that they're going to be taking here where their central texts are um, written by people of color. So that... Um, it's not controversial necessarily, but um, it asks for a lot of trust. You know, there's got to be a lot of trust. Um, one of my students, um, young young man, African American from Mississippi, was writing about a poem that another student had selected. That's about a lynching, and um, I was really, I felt really good that he was able to say, you know. This is about the place I live. What are some of the other services that the Center for Teaching and Learning provides today in 2020? Right. So one of our most popular things is something I call a FACT, a Formative Analysis of Classroom Teaching. We do this in the middle of the semester, and they're completely voluntary and absolutely confidential. It's a way of getting feedback from the students right in the middle of class where you can still make some changes. Um, one of my cons we have a whole team of consultants, about a dozen faculty who are trained to do these. And one of us will go in 20 minutes before class is over. The faculty member leaves the class. We put students in small groups and we ask them to think about their learning in the class. What's helping, what's hindering, and what suggestions they have for the instructor. They have small group discussions for a few minutes and they put all their ideas on the board and we go through them and they talk about, hmm, maybe some of them aren't quite, um, opinion shared by everyone else. So, you know, one example, one group said, you know, the tests just come out of nowhere. There's no preparation for them. They're not like anything we've been doing in class. They're just absolutely out of the blue. And a group from the back of the room said, you guys aren't doing the homework, are you? <laughs> right? So the students really teach each other a lot in those conversations. And, you know, the first group was like, oh, can we take that down? <laughs> you know? are, are you allowed to do like, any data analysis, uh, collect information on mm -hmm. the students? And I'll, I'll give you an example. Something I've been doing for several years now mm -hmm. is I'll take, after the first six-week exam in Naval History, I'll take the average grade of those students who were in the first row, mm -hmm. the second row, oh, and yeah. on to the fifth row. Mm -hmm. And then I put those up, and, I mean, invariably, it is consistent. The front mm -hmm. row, first two row students are A's and B's, and mm -hmm. that last row yeah. is always C's and D's. Mm -hmm. and, I, and so the next thing you see is in the next class is students will actually move to the front of the class because <laughs> they just assume that <laughs> moving in that where chair. your position is, <laughs> yeah. is, is it. But it's, it's mm -hmm. a different thing. You're more engaged the closer right. you are to the information. Yes, yes, I think that's absolutely right. Um, but, well... One kind of analysis that I did is I actually did this fact with the um, midshipman group study leaders, and I asked them what sorts of things help them learn and what gets in the way of their learning. And there were, I did, there were 140 students who participated, and it was fascinating. And so we actually have a bookmark that has you know the top 10 um, things that they said in each category. One of the things and. One of the things that has happened as a result of doing these, and I started doing these at JMU, so I've been doing this for 20 years, I guess. And over, as the more I do them, the more I have come to trust the students. They're really perceptive and honest about 
their role in the learning process and what engages them. They don't say frivolous things. They are really very serious. So when we asked the midshipman group study leaders about their experiences, one of the first thing they said is, it helps me if I have clear learning objectives, which is something, of course, the center helps people develop. So I felt very, you know, inspired by the students saying that. One of the things that gets in their way is when other students are using technology because it distracts them. What kind of technologies are distracting? And again, I'm I'm thinking, you know, you you and I grew up in a different era. I I show my students the history of communication or just listening to the music. Mm -hmm. And I say, well, you know, we went from... LPs to and I'll, I'll bring in an old eight track cassette that I had from <laughs> yeah. you know the early eighties, and then the smaller cassettes, et cetera, et cetera. Right. How what is the technology today that you see might not be available in the not yeah. too distant future that that annoys them or uh-huh. that disturbs them? Right. Um, if students are in classes where they're using their laptops for something. Um, I spend a lot of time watching classes at the invitation of instructors and for awards and things like that. So we always sit in the back. And it's amazing what people are actually doing on their laptops. World they're of on, Warcraft. Yeah, they're on I Facebook. Saw some, yeah. they're, um, yes, they're on Facebook. They're on their email. I actually watched two students watch an episode of The Simpsons right in front of me you know it's it is incredibly distracting um also on their phones you know texting you know and even if they're not supposed to use their phones in class they're watching texts come in um so those kinds of things have you found or is there are there any studies that suggest that you shouldn't allow laptops in class Mm -hmm. and then it should strictly be note-taking because they've in a way just as i think what is it 50 percent of students today don't learn cursive which yes. is a danger because in history, mm-hmm. you have to read 19th century mm-hmm. manuscripts that are in cursive writing. And how do you account for that? Because if you're not learning how to take notes, mm-hmm. you're relying on this laptop. Yeah. You know, is there a danger to that, that wonderful advantage of technology? Yes, actually, I mean, there are studies that show that when you're, when you're taking notes by typing them, it's just kind of going from your ears to your hands without stopping in your brain. Um, so yeah, you're just taking dictation, essentially. You're not actually thinking about what you're listening to. So note-taking by hand is recommended. Um, there's also studies that have shown that just having a cell phone around, even if you're not using it, is a distraction. You know, just its very presence is distracting to you. Um, I gave a student a paper back, and she asked me a question that I had answered in the comments to the paper. And so I said, did you read the comments? And she said, I can't read cursive. How did your office respond to Mm COVID-19? And I want to say we were probably fortunate in a way that the students were on spring break Mm -hmm. because it gave us at least at least some time to prepare. Yes. How did how did the Center for Teaching and Learning adapt to this challenge? How did you identify the challenges in the first case? Well, I mean, it was it was quite a ride um, that week. So it was the week of spring break. Um, it's I remember on Tuesday, so just at the very beginning of spring break. I guess it, I don't know if it was in the dean's meeting. I can't remember when the word came out that we might have to start think about thinking about online teaching. And 
so I immediately called a staff meeting and we planned a series of workshops. We have a series in the center called Pop-Up Friday, and that's noon. We do something at noon every day on Friday. So on Monday, there's a book group. We were reading um, Gone Girl, Down Girl, Down Girl um, by Kate Mann, which was a really challenging book about misogyny. And... Um, on Tuesday, there's the Boyce Group, which um, reads Robert Boyce's Advice for New Faculty Members, and that's for the, um, the new civilian faculty members. On Wednesday, there's a technology workshop. On Thursday is the workshop for new military faculty members. And on Friday, we just do whatever comes up, you know, and sometimes we were planning, a, uh, we were planning to do a pop-up on Joy Harjo to celebrate her uh, appointment as the Poet Laureate, or we'll have someone come in and talk about um, what actually happens in the leadership courses, or we had a vocal co- coach come and talk about how to um, use your voice, you know, and modulate your speaking, you know, all sorts of things. So we're like, okay, great, we'll do a series of pop-ups on the kinds of technology that people are going to need if this happens. And we came up with a whole, you know, six-week plan um, for using Panopto for lecture capture, um, you know, Blackboard for Dropbox and grading, Google Meet, Hangout Meets um, for holding synchronous classes. You know, we were going to teach them all these things. Can you describe the difference between synchronous and asynchronous yes. teaching? Because that's a question they ask us every day when uh-huh. we're teaching, you know, the list of were you on the yard or not? Mm-hmm. Were you, or have you been exposed to COVID? Have you done synchronous or asynchronous teaching? Right, exactly. Um, so that's really the first decision that people need to make when they're thinking about going online. So um, synchronous is when you all meet together in your regular class time and you do whatever you might do in class online. Now, how to translate that to online um, situation is challenging. Asynchronous is when there are all sorts of um, assignments and expectations for students that they do whenever they want. Um, There still might be due dates, but um, there's no meeting time where everybody gets all together. is that difficult for the midshipmen because they're so used to an environment that their schedule is so regulated yeah. from the more from the time they wake up throughout their class day right through the evening? Yeah, um, and because they're spread out across well, the nation right, right now, exactly. So people understand, you know, there are very few people, few, very few midshipmen at Bancroft Hall right now. Right, and they're um, they're spread across the nation, and they're in different time zones. You know, so we have. People in Alaska and Hawaii, um, very difficult to meet at um, 7.55 for, um, for many of our students. Did you adjust for that? Yes. Or did the, I should say, did yeah. the academy the adjust academy for that? The academy did adjust for that. We started using, after the first week, when we realized how difficult this was, um, we moved to a two-hour delay, which was very wise. There are, yes, a lot of things that we learned in that first week that we implemented that, you know, in hindsight, it would have been great if we had realized beforehand. But the time zone thing was really a problem. The other problem that the midshipmen are having is their family expectations. They're How so? Very different situations. Well, one of my students is expected to take care of four, her four young nieces and nephews. Um, so her brothers and sisters can continue to work. Um, another one of my students is expected to continue to, to resume the role that he had before he left, which was running the family farm. Um, one of my students, um, the student in Mississippi, because of the tornadoes that have gone through the area, is, has intermittent electricity. So 
you know, there's just all sorts of things. Yeah, I guess what people assume that here in 2020, everybody has access to the internet and can do this. And you're right. I mean, I had a student in Puerto Rico right. who was stuck there for a while, yeah. and they didn't have power in, in several areas. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do how do teachers here adjust for that? Yeah, it's been very difficult, but that's actually a, a case for asynchronous um, work. And my students, I we had a we had a Google Meets. Um, meeting for the first class that we were back. And I asked them, you know, whether they wanted to keep meeting in person or if they would rather do things asynchronously. And many people did ask that question. My students voted hands down. Not a single person wanted to keep meeting. They all wanted to go asynchronous. Um, now, I, I meet with them every couple of weeks just to check in, particularly when papers are due. So we're meeting on Friday, for example, because they've got a paper due on Monday. Have you done any kind of study to ask the students why they prefer one over the other, asynchronous versus synchronous. And have you done a similar study for the faculty? No, actually, that that would be a good question. That would be a good question to ask. Um, the dean's office has um, determined, and I, this may be coming from the superintendent, that classes will be held synchronously um, because they want the mids to be kept onto a schedule. And so the summer school classes we'll be designing will be at least in part synchronous. Um, that does make it easier in terms of taking attendance which we're required to do. Um, so even if you, and, and that's what a lot of people are finding is kind of a hybrid of synchronous and asynchronous is working better for them. Um, they get to check in with their students, just you know, put eyes on them, just make sure they're okay. Um, see if there's anything going on that they wouldn't write to you about, but that they would talk to you about. Although I have found my students are very um, willing to be open in emails about what's going on. With the various platforms that the professors are using to teach online, could we have done this five or 10 years ago based on technology? Um, Yes, well, Blackboard came in in 1997. So, and that was really the first time that we had any kind of, um, you know, technologically based organizing device for our classes. Um, It was pretty clunky then and um, it's it's what we use here at the academy. It is not my favorite. I'm not a fan. Um, I'm moving it over to Google Classroom um, for most things. Students prefer it as well. We have done surveys of students about that. Why do they prefer, uh, based on the answers you've received, why do they prefer one type of platform to another? What are the advantages and disadvantages, I guess, if you right. could discuss that? Um, well, Google Classroom is just available everywhere. Um, you don't have to log in. You just have to, you know, you have, you need to be invited to attend it so it's not open. It's, it's secure. But once you've been invited, you can get to it from any device, anywhere. It's very intuitive. Um, how to use it um, is quite clear. It's similar to the sorts of things that one might ordinarily do on a computer. People have um, often familiarity with Google Docs. So, you know, it's it's just a very similar thing like that. It's very seamless. Um, Blackboard is clunky. It's, to be honest, it's almost like it has too many features. So when you open the menu, you know, you have to scroll down, you know, to send an email to your students. You know, it takes forever. It takes, you know, what, seven clicks just to get into your classroom, whereas with um, with Google Classroom, it takes one. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's just bulky. It feels like you have to go through all sorts of levels to get to what you want to do. And the things that they call what things on the, it, it's, conf- the, the names for things are just confusing. 
you know, they have this thing called inline grading. Well, that's just where you grade. It's, it's, the inline doesn't make any sense at all. Um, there's assignments and assessments, but they have the same thing in them. Nobody knows where things have been put. It's, um, it's just not, it's not easy to use. It's very difficult to grade in. It takes me, I'm, I'm using it now. It, it has nice features like, um, you know, there's a plagiarism detector that papers can go through after they've been um, submitted, which is very handy. But, um, but to do the grading, you know, just to, just to open up the, the document that you're trying to grade takes a little bit of time. And I found that it's taking me about twice as long to grade as it did before, and everybody's been saying that, that online teaching has been, it's been working, but it's taking so much time. Preparation so, time. Preparation time, well, and, and grading, I think, is the main thing. Is that simply because it's new? Because you have a lot of faculty members who have been teaching here for, you know, 10, 20 years, so they're familiar with, with the material, they know what they're gonna talk about, they don't have to prep that much, and here you've got a new system. Mm -hmm. Is it? And would you think that three or four or five years from now, the faculty members would say, "Oh yeah, this is simply part of, part of the way we do things, and there's really no no problem." Well, I mean, that's one of the wonderful things that has happened um, as a result of all of the training that we suddenly threw up. You know, we had that Tuesday we were going to do um, pop-up Fridays. By Wednesday, we were doing um, a workshop on um, Panopto to film your lectures and Google Meets to meet synchronously. And we, so we planned that on Wednesday. We did it on Thursday. 70 people came. Um, 70 people logged in. So we had 140 people in that meeting. And then it's been watched over 100 times since then we taped it. So, but Almost immediately, people started saying, oh, you know, I can see how I would use this in a face-to-face -face class. So it was strangely a wonderful opportunity for the center to get people to think about new technology that's been available for years, that nobody had to use. Because we were so used to just doing things the way we've been. Absolutely. But the problem with the, the time, there's two problems there. One is, um, the dean is um, fond of saying, and he's absolutely right, we're not teaching online classes, we're teaching classes online. So what we're planning to do um, coming up in the gap that we have between the end of this semester and the beginning of summer school is actually develop workshops where we teach people how to develop an online class to be delivered online. That's going to help a lot. But the other problem is that we just don't have the equipment that we need to do this effectively. So the grading I was talking about in Blackboard, it's incredibly cumbersome because every comment you're, you make, you have to you know, type it in and write comments on the side, um, whereas, you know, if you're writing on a piece of paper, it takes, you know, just, you don't even, almost don't even think about it, you know, as you're thinking, you're writing instead of composing. But what people really need is a tablet so that they can call the papers up and actually write on them with a stylus. So one of the things that we've just done is place an order for as many as we possibly can um, care packages for faculty that would have either a Surface Pro or an iPad in it. Um, and have people, you know, pick which one they want. But that way they'll have the equipment that they need in order to do it. And I wish we had done that instantly. Um, I wish we had done it years ago. You know, I mean, the people who had that kind of equipment and who were used to using it had a tremendous advantage over people who just were trying to kind of retrofit 
the laptops that we had with the programs that we had. You mentioned a couple of, I think you've mentioned Zoom, you've mentioned Google Classroom. Mm -hmm. Some of the video platforms that we've been using, mm -hmm. can you discuss what has been advantageous? Uh, you mentioned, what was it? Pan, uh, Panopto. Panopto, yeah, mm -hmm. I can never remember. Yeah. yeah, well, people love Zoom. That was the most frequently asked question that I got at the beginning of this is, you know, did we have an enterprise license for Zoom? And the answer was no. Um, we moved very, very quickly and, and were able to get 100 Zoom for Education licenses. Um, I'm not sure how long we're going to be able to continue using them because there are some security issues that have turned up, you know, beyond mm -hmm. people failing to lock down their, um, their meetings. There's apparently it's even worse. But um, so... When we got Zoom, that helped a lot. That helped people a lot because, again, people had used it before. It's very intuitive. The um, it's a really seamless interface. The audio visual quality is much better than Google Hangouts Meet, um, which is a little clunky. You have to add lots of extensions um, onto Chrome in order to get it to work in a similar way that Zoom works, although we've been discovering those and making those available. So we're making um, Google Classroom work a little bit better. But um, there are problems in Google Classroom particularly. You can't show a video. Well, you can, but the audio doesn't come through. That's a problem. Um, in Zoom, you can create breakout sessions, which are really fabulous if you want to have students work in small groups. And in Google Classrooms, there's a workaround. You have to have many rooms open, you know, different um, um, invitations, and then move people in and out. So, you know, Panopto is incredibly useful because you can record something in advance. You can show a video in it. Um, you know, I'm so lucky to have Julie Ju and Carolyn Judge as part of the center because, you know, they they have been awesome. I mean, I don't know what we would have done without Julie. Regine hired her to help us make migrate onto Blackboard um, when that came in in the late 90s. And her background is in instructional technology. And so she already knew, you know, all of the things that we need to know, needed to know. It was awesome. So we had the people in place. We and did. that's why we could adapt so quickly. Yes. With this, this, I mean, I don't think people realize how quickly the faculty adjusted. It was almost like turning on the light switch overnight. It was. Yeah, it was. I mean, so again, going back to that, um, um, that week of spring break, um, one of the things that we did eventually was to have um, students initially delayed coming back, delayed return. Um, ultimately, that became you know, uh, not return for the rest of the semester. But um, it gave the faculty, we had an extra four days to completely redesign our classes. Um, so in addition, so, you know, all of this was happening by the end of spring break. We had a sense that there was going, we would have to, we would have to go online at least for part of the semester. Um, we started doing workshops that following Monday um, all day long. We did... Um, workshops on Panopto, Blackboard, Google Classroom Meets, and then we had drop-in sessions where people could come and pick up equipment and ask random questions. And, you know, the level of ability for the faculty was extreme. You had people coming to the advanced Panopto section because they wanted to learn how to, they wanted to to learn a quicker way to edit Panopto videos. You had someone coming to the Blackboard session because they didn't know how to upload a document in Blackboard. You know, I mean, it was just an enormous range. And we had to get 
all of those people up and running by that Friday. Um, it was really um, quite a, a lift. We only missed two classes. That's right. Out That's of an right. entire semester. That's, That's right. how quickly this developed. Yep. It was ama- it was amazing. And Karen, the, f- the final big question is is this? Mm-hmm. Uh, you're speaking to your successor 50 or 100 years from now. Uh, in, again, in the context of what the dean said this morning at his meeting, and you and I were, were uh, on that conference call, where he said there was no template. Yeah. There was no, hey, here's a virus, and here's the playbook to how we need to respond to it. Mm-hmm. So with, with that in mind, mm-hmm. how would you advise your successor 50 or 100 years from now in dealing with something similar? Mm-hmm. What are the baseline changes or considerations for that person? Being agile. That was the main thing. Um, you know, higher, higher education does not move quickly. So I think the thing that was most difficult for us was realizing how fast we had to respond and how often that response had to change. You know, even, even during the middle of a presentation, you might have to change what you were doing. You know, um, changing the idea of the pop-ups to, you know, having, you know, the entire week full of workshops. Even halfway through that week, we realized that the dedicated workshops to different topics was not as effective as just having people come in for whatever it was, you know. So we were just there, you know, from 8 to 4, answering questions. You know, people, we, I sent out a Google Meets invitation, and people just dropped in. Then we figured out that it was better for the three of us to have different meeting sites so people could go to different people for different questions because the volume was so high. You know, we saw... Oh, honestly, at one point I could have told you, we saw hundreds of people that week, and everybody had a very specific and different need. And some people just really needed to talk about, you know, conceptually, you know, what to get in their head, you know, how to get that online class in their heads. Um, We were very, very fortunate um, to have people come forward to say, you know, let me talk about what it's like to, to do an online class. And so we were able to do that. Um, but, you know, the level of difficulty people had in conceptualizing it was, was vast. So just constantly being ready to make a change, you know, not to be afraid to cancel what you've planned, not to stick to a plan, you know, just being, being willing to jump anytime you sensed that you needed to do it you know and and that's one of the things I regret is that we didn't move quickly enough on ordering um, supplies for the faculty that we didn't move quickly enough on getting the zoom licenses that we didn't move quickly enough in getting um, respondus monitor which is a, a way that students can tape themselves taking exams we got it just in the nick of time just before 12 week exams you know I I don't think we were used to the speed at which we were going to have to make adjustments, and we are now. So, um, you know, that's just a real change in thinking that we never would have anticipated. We canceled the fifth annual conference on teaching and learning, and we've replaced it with a series of faculty development workshops on online teaching to get people ready for the summer. You know, that's, it's, 
it's inconceivable to me um, as I think about you know, how I would have felt in January if someone had said, you know, so in April, are you going to completely change what you're going to do for the conference, <laughs> how you're going to deliver it and what it's going to be about? You know, we're working on this conference for a year now. And then suddenly, you know, just like scrap that and do something else. Um, that's been constant. Arguably, that's also a great lesson for the midshipmen as they become Navy and Marine Corps officers is mm-hmm. agility, dropping everything because mm-hmm. suddenly on a moment's notice, everything changes. Yep. That is absolutely true. It's funny. I mean, as academics, that's not something that we have to face very often. Great. Dr. Karen Sproles, Director of the Center for Teaching and Learning at the United States Naval Academy, thank you very much for coming to Preble Hall. We really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for inviting me. And for our listeners, uh, if you like the episode, as the other episodes, please leave feedback on any of the platforms. And remember, hold fast. This too shall pass. Preble Hall is in no way intended to reflect the official positions of the Department of the Navy or the Naval Academy.